Hey everybody, welcome back to the Signals and Noise podcast. I'm Chris Leonard, one of the co-hosts. And as you may be aware, on the Proton Web Podcast Network, we have a handful of different podcasts, uh, not just ours. And like just like the Church Sound podcast um, that I was on a few weeks ago, uh, the Front of the House Fridays did their first live stream. Uh, and they brought on uh, Bull and Chris Taylor and Russ Long was the host of Front of the House Fridays. Um, we had a live stream, so you could, uh, if you want to just stop this and go check it out, there's links in the description you can watch it on youtube you can watch it on facebook um, or if you just want to listen to the audio you know i want to share it with you guys so i just want to make sure you guys are aware there's multiple podcasts on this network please go check them out um but in the meantime i'm going to play the live stream here uh on this podcast player and uh you know we did share some pictures in the beginning so you might not get some of the references so feel free to go check out the video otherwise you'll be able to follow along for the most part uh it's just a fun conversation we talked about the relationship between a monitor engineer and a front of house engineer something we've kind of talked about um, on our podcast as well but it was good to kind of bring it into a different light and uh, we hope you guys enjoy it um, and we'll see you on our next regular episode hey everybody welcome to the first on web podcast network uh, i'm chris leonard uh, one of the co-hosts of the sickleton noise podcast with me i have russ long host of the front of the house friday hey everybody russ i think you're listening to our live stream uh you know what that is not the live stream that's something else that my computer decided to play it's all good it's all good uh so welcome uh so if you're familiar with singleton noise podcast you've probably heard my voice before uh we have other hosts michael lawrence and kyle churnside we talked to a bunch of fun people in the audio industry uh some front of house some monitors some theaters some broadcast sports we do we cover it all uh so feel free to go you know check us out but today it's not about us today it's about russ and the front of house fridays so russ what what is front of the house fridays well during this uh crazy COVID time. Uh, it seems like everybody's stuck at home wishing they were working instead of being out on the road, wishing they were uh, getting to spend more time at home. And um, just from talking to friends and, and seeing how anxious everybody is to talk about gear and and uh, and reminisce about their time on the road, I just thought, man, what a great time to uh, still stay in contact with people and have conversations about about gear and um, and touring and um and invite people to listen in so it was the idea was for me to have conversations with people and during this crazy covid time uh front of house takes on an entirely new meaning so i'm actually when i can i go to somebody's house and in front of their house or behind their house or the side of their house i have a conversation there with them and we record it and um and put it out there for people to listen in to that's great. And uh, so what do we um, what do we have in store for us tonight? Who, who, who do we have on with us tonight? Well, this is kind of an extension of Front of the House Fridays, and this is a chance to do a live stream with uh, what I'd call rock stars of audio mixing. And um, for this first time trying this out, uh, we decided to have Chris Taylor and Robert Bull, uh, who are two amazing engineers and interesting enough, they're not currently touring. Well, nobody's currently a touring engineer, but they're especially not a currently touring engineer right now. Chris left the road about uh, 16 or 17 years ago to uh, go to work for Yamaha. And, um, and Robert Bull left the road, I guess about seven years ago when he decided five years ago to, to um, spend more time at home with his family and, and, uh, and kind of get, get away from the travel and everything. But, um, but these two guys uh, have worked with the virtual who's who in the, the touring business. I mean, Chris Taylor has toured with Barbara Streisand, Joe Cocker, 
uh, Michael Jackson, um, Janet Jackson, you know, tons and tons of people. Robert Bowles toured with Martina McBride, um, uh, Trisha Yearwood, and more recently, the Rolling Stones. And interesting enough, these guys toured together with uh, both Jewel and Amy Grant. So, um, and Bull is a longtime monitor engineer. Uh, Chris is a longtime front of house engineer. And um, and we kind of wanted to come together to talk a lot about that working relationship between moderate between a monitor engineer and a front of house engineer, and how uh, either that is a strong relationship that helps everybody, or or maybe not so, depending on the situation. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, so I, I'll start this podcast off with a proper way and just set the record straight that monitors <laughs> is the best end of the snake. So bull, I got your back. We're good. We, you know, just that's sure we're clear on that. So, that's right. You know, if you I, disagree, let us know in the comments. But Chris, uh, but bull and I are right, so it's, it's all good. I love the fact that the front of house guys are wearing in ear monitors. The monitor guys wear headphones. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I always. I mean, you can decide what you like for which one's the better position. But all I know is everybody has a bad night now and then. If I have a bad night as a front of house engineer, I tell everybody goodbye, climb on the bus, don't ever have to see him again. If I'm a monitor engineer and I have a bad night, I got to see them all on the bus and mix for them again the next night. So uh, I just soon be able to leave those bad nights behind. Yeah, but don't you think, I mean, Russ and CT, don't you think that maybe it's it's got a little different just because of, these all right i mean you guys you know have to answer to that now right i mean we we can at least man up and go yep you know what i had a bad night and uh blah 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 you guys you get judged over that microphone i mean that's that's kind of crazy yeah there's been people uh lost their jobs over some mixes on some iphones that i've heard about yeah and it's sad because the iphone isn't uh known for its capabilities to record bass guitar and um and it's sad if that's what a cost of your job yeah, I've seen sure. lighting guys lose it too, and they talk about timing, and you go, "Timing? You're sitting in the 300 section up there. You know how do you know what's time to what? You know, it's crazy." That's right. Um, well, I kind of wanted to get started by looking at uh, back in, before there were monitor engineers, and I think Chris is the only one who can take us back hey, to those days. What's that? <laughs> um, but we have a uh, picture of Chris's first PA. Well, tell us about this, Chris. Well. In the 70s, I decided to go in the sound production business. So I built a PA. And surprisingly, at that point, that was a big PA. Uh, <laughs> that's actually Jim Stafford up there singing on the flatbed truck out in a park someplace. But yeah, I started touring. I did probably uh, with that size of a PA, did 200 shows a year easy with Conway Twitty for about four years. Wow. In arena shows, right? Arena shows, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. I mean, yeah, that doesn't look like an arena PA for what you expect these days, but uh, but yeah, that's pretty impressive. But at the time, everybody was stacking, putting sure vocal masters columns up to do the same thing. I, I like the um, I like the custom ports on the yeah. sides of the box. Yeah, th those are custom tuning ports yeah. that I arranged, uh, mainly because I didn't have the money to buy the handles. <laughs> but knew you were going to add them later, so uh, yeah, they they came later. Uh, but they're consistent from stage left to stage right, so that's you're of right. Of course, there. yeah, I didn't. I, I my, I'm married to an interior designer. I have to keep the, <laughs> keep the look consistent, right? Yeah. So, so Chris, tell us about. You were telling me earlier, which I couldn't believe this about how multiple acts would tour together and they would each have their own PA. 
Yeah, I remember going to a show when I was in the 70s. I used to try to go to shows and see what people were doing. And I went to a show. Uh, this is the, probably the weirdest lineup I've ever seen in my life. There's a local band called Moloch in Memphis, Tennessee, which was kind of a, I don't even know how to describe it, but I guess it was heavy metal at the time. The second band was a band called Crow. Some people might remember a hit of theirs called Cottage Cheese. It was a biker band. Third band was Bread. Yeah. And that was the lineup for the night. And every band set their own PA up between songs. I mean, between sets. And there was like different types of PAs and stuff. And I sat there, well, that's pretty wild. You couldn't hear anything, but it was, except for Crow, they were loud. But it was funny to see Crow with this huge big biker guy and then Bread come up, sing all those little harmonies and harmonies and stuff. Yeah, it was, I don't know who put that one together, but that's probably the weirdest ones I've ever seen. Oh, that's great. And so when was, when did people start to use monitor engineers separate from the front of house engineer doing it? Well, that's part of the reason that I was working at the time, because I actually had this buddy of mine that was a pretty high tech guy and he showed me how to make an analog split. And uh, I had a little, Ashley made a console back in those days that had four aux ends on it. So I put one of those at monitor desk. And so you could have four monitor mixes on stage and then front of house console did whatever the front of house did. But yeah. Uh, and then pretty soon on Yamaha, came out with a PM 1000 and there was somebody, I don't remember the guy's name who decided to take the bus buttons out and replace them with knobs so that you could have four monitor mixes that way. And that's about the best you could get four mixes. Wow. Those were the days. <laughs> now, how many we got in the Yamaha con 72? Uh, yeah. And some people <laughs> complain about it. That's not enough. So anyway. Yeah. It's turning into an entirely different, Thing. Well, let's step through those photos. If you go to that next photo real quick. Stand by, sorry. Well, the thing I love about this next one is uh, it's during Chris's short time as a... Yes. Oh, that's not the right one. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was okay. good, too. Wait, if that's up there, I'm going to say right now, Chris, if I had, if, if I were going to mix just the, the lead vocalist, that would be my dream setup right there. Because those <laughs> consoles sounded so unbelievable. Uh, you could turn on each band pass uh, on every channel. So if you didn't want to EQ the mid, you could leave it off and leave it out of the signal chain. And they had the coolest um, uh, meters as well, right, CT? Yeah, the meters were, you could see RMS and peak at the same time on the, yeah. these plasma meters. But there were only 10 of those consoles, and I usually had two of them. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> the famous Clareboard. I mean, you toured with it from what year to what year? I I don't know when, what year I started, probably in the early 80s, but the last tour I did with a with a Claire board was in 1998. It was a Joe Cocker tour. Oh, how awesome was that? Yeah, it was rock and roll. Yeah, okay. Man. Now you can skip that one, please. Well, the thing I love, though, <laughs> is you got a guy messing with the mic. It's like <laughs> you're playing guitar, and it's like, you know what? I don't know why this guy's messing with the mic, but it, it's, it made sense that you uh, made a transition because obviously this guy didn't know uh, – didn't know where to place the mic, so I... Yeah, he, he was the music director. Okay, well, I'm not going to slam him too much then. <laughs> well, is that considered an analog plug-in then? Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, okay, go to the next one. So this is a... I don't, I don't so audio, audio guy here running a video, so bear with me on this one. <laughs> uh, and uh, the next one being the... Uh, is it Jan Jackson? Is that what you're looking for? Uh, or... You know what? Let's go... Uh, I think if it's number three, it should be right about the year bull was born 
Number three. Well, number three is the one we're just looking at mixing on the Claire boards. Uh, oh, that's correct. Oh, that's yeah. That was three then. So, um, oh yeah, there's another Claire board. Is four. So that's uh, yeah. Which the, and that Claire board was uh, the most desired console by so many engineers. I mean, that's like a Neve of uh, live sound at the time. Yeah. And um, uh, I know Gary Brown a few years ago was considering having Claire Brothers rebuild a couple of them so he could take them out with fish because uh, uh, the the sound is so so amazing. Yeah, you notice the AMS reverb on the top yes. up there. Uh, that's up there sitting loose because it had quick release screws on top. So when it didn't work, you could massage it. <laughs> is that a 224 lexicon? Probably. That's why awesome. I took a lot. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's got a, I mean, there's one photo that he's got a couple of 1176s in it too. Yeah. This is uh Janet Jackson in the big egg in Japan. I just wanted to, show bull that I did a stadium show once. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How was that putting all that stuff up? And is that the Tokyo dome? Yeah. How was that? Uh, it's a large fun. Yeah. That place. I'll never forget doing a show there. And I kind of, it was one of those rust where you said, sometimes you have bad nights and I had a really rough night and the sax player looked over at me and he said, bull, we've been playing this place and I'll, I'll say place being nice. For 50 years and it's not you it always sounds this bad gave me a hug and i was like oh man that was really cool so that's pretty funny that's funny what kind of console is that that's a clairboard oh that's a clairboard too it didn't look like it had enough angle it's probably the way the picture was taken all right so um bull what what year did you get into the business and start and start mixing um, oh, you know what? Real quick, before you answer that, sorry to interrupt. I should mention that Bull and Chris are both upcoming guests on the Front of the House Fridays podcast. So uh, I've got a full interview with Bull that comes out this Friday, and then Chris's interview will be two weeks from Friday. So you'll get um, uh, a chance to get to know these guys a, a bit more at that point. Yeah, um, if you can't sleep at night, just put that on, and it, uh, you'll be sawing logs. It'll be great. At least my portion of it. Chris's is actually pretty fun. <laughs> they're they're all good. Um, if you can get past me, uh, okay. So, Bull, talk about your your start into the audio mixing world. Uh, it, it's yeah. I went. I'll say it. I went to Full Sail in '91, and um, during that time, I thought I, was, I wanted to do post production, and uh, I realized that two days on a kick drum was just not my cup of tea. I didn't have the have the attention span of a gnat, hence I'm a monitor guy. And uh, so anyway, I, I volunteered uh, to do work, and I became a local stagehand down in Florida, and Garth Brooks came through, um, and his monitor engineer was stupid enough to give me his phone number, uh, Brent Dannon, who we're still really good friends with today. And so when I got out of Full Sail, I just kept calling him, kept calling him, and he finally called me back one day, and he says, all right, I got a gig, but if I recommend you for this gig, promise me to the Lord above you will please quit calling me. I said, okay. <laughs> and um, like four or five days later, I was 19 years old and I was on a plane to Japan and I spent four months over there and I did, um, it was a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus, but it was George Lucas super live adventure. So my job was to sit in front of house. We did the Tokyo Dome and surround sound and Osaka Joe Hall and all those places. And so at the time it was really cutting edge, but my job was all the sound effects. So 
I had a keyboard with three samplers and a cardboard cutout that sat on top of the keyboards, and it would say grunt or chair break or, you know, whatever blast or whatever else. And so I had to learn all the choreography because we had live animals involved. And so the tiger could flip out, which they did quite often. And, you know, we'd have to stall or do something like that. So I'd have to learn all that. And that's kind of how I started in, uh, in the business. That's awesome. Uh, then, yeah, that, I mean, that picture from Janet Jackson was 1990. That was, so that was before your time. <laughs> so yeah. what year was what year was that, George Lucas? I want to say it was 92, 93, something like that. I will tell you a funny story about that, though, CT. Last time I was at the Tokyo Dome, Dave Natal, he goes, this crane operator is awesome. I go, really? He goes, yeah, watch this. And he took a single 18 drum sub, and he made him lift him up from the downstage edge and land it in the back of the stage. And obviously, you look... <laughs> You look and there's a single 18 just like floating up in this huge crane that they build everything with, takes it over, lands it exactly perfectly. And he looked at me and goes, told you. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so uh, the Stones, I guess that's a good time to quit. I think uh, you um, <laughs> you uh, doing the Stones, uh, I mean, probably the ultimate monitor setup ever how many how many wedges how many mixes did you guys have on that and it kind of the wedges kind of depended just how big the stage was i mean a normal day was 88 wedges um tokyo dome we do like anywhere between 125 or 132 it just it kind of depended um that shot was actually the arena tour they hid me underneath which was pretty awesome so if they threw things i could duck it was it was pretty <laughs> great uh but what they didn't they were they were all great and 24 mixes of wedges and 10 stereo mixes of ears uh, all done on an analog console. Uh, everything was analog, except for the reverb that I used. And what reverb? <laughs> nine ninety Yamaha nine ninety, because it did the one hundred and twenty beats per, you know, the delay that one twenty delay that it did, and it would do a reverb, and that's what Mick was kind of used to hearing. But if you look at the picture that's up now, you can see every three feet there's a wedge, and that's kind of that was that's what I mean. It was it varied. You know how many wedges you put out every day, just depending on how long the thrust was or you know, how wide the wings were, or whatever. Oh man, that's crazy. Um, and I think uh, I always think of uh, that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza's George Costanza's talking in front of that board meeting, and he says something, everybody laughs, and whether they completely bomb because he's bombed a few times before, he goes, "Thank you, good night." Whatever it's like, <laughs> you're out there, you're touring with the Rolling Stones. That's as good as it gets. All right, good night. I'm, I'm gonna go work in an office. Yeah, I know I've been toying with it. Um, getting I off the love road. that photo. <laughs> That's kind of a funny photo. That was, you know, they flew in their own planes, but uh, Keith actually flew home um, on a, a commercial airline. And so they actually roped off part of the air airport for <laughs> us and had catering and everything else. Oh my gosh. So it was, it was, we're laughing. We just had a beer together and McKay's kind of making, well, what do you think there, mate? So yeah, it was really cool. That's awesome. They even brought catering into the airport. Nice. They did. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Never. But I mean, you know, it's funny. I toured with Martina McBride for eighteen years, and uh, you know, she was such a she is such a, an amazing vocalist. But she's even more challenges you to uh, to mix. I mean, I don't think I could have mixed the Stones if I wouldn't have mixed her. I mean, she builds confidence and, and makes you listen to things that you know fundamentally. Uh, she challenged every night. I mean, she delivered every single night. Uh, every time she opened up her mouth, it was it was a thousand percent, and so you know you had to give that too. And um, I really think 
learning from her and us learning together, um, there's no way I could have uh, mixed the stones because you didn't, you just didn't get a lot of feedback from the stones. You know what I mean? It was the, the guys did what they did and you just had to make it right. And, you know, with Martina, we would work through things and phasing and, you know, cause with her, we had 16 wedges out with her when we opened up for straight. So output phasing was a big deal and how it locked with front of house. And, you know, John and I worked really hard together and stuff like that. So it really, I, I don't, I mean, she was the, she was the school man, and, and she was on it. It got to the point once where she, she says, it just sounds like it's stuck in the box. And I flipped phase and she goes, okay, what's that? And explain it to me. And so then every time she would hear it, she'd just do that. And that meant flip phase. She'd call frequencies, you know, it was great. So speak, speak, speaking of all that level coming off the stage um, and your guys' experience, speaking of the relationship between monitors in front of house, um, how much of that has been uh, communication with front of house or front of house back to monitors saying, hey, you're killing me up here. What can you do about this? How do you, how do you guys navigate that when the artist is demanding what they're demanding, yet you're still trying to you know, put a, a good show out front? What's that? How's that go down? Well, I have to address that because I my first experience – with a, with a big show was a friend of mine named Randy Weitzel and he had been doing monitors for a long time. And uh, he came up to me and told me what he was going to do. He tuned his wedges. I tuned front of house. Then we tuned it together. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, never let the band on stage play without the front of house on. And, and I learned through all that. I thought it was easy. And then Randy went to work at Yamaha and all of a sudden I was going out with other monitor engineers and uh, I realized the whole job got a lot harder because until I actually did a show for Yamaha and Randy was mixing monitors and all of a sudden, Hey, this is all got fixed. It's, it's a relationship of like, even with ears. I know when, when Bull were out with Jewel, uh, he was using a lot of, uh, I didn't realize this, but he was using a lot of uh, audience mics to feed into the ear monitors. And I left for a couple of weeks and uh, he was telling me that everything <laughs> was, was completely different while I was gone. But um, it was, uh, it's one of those things that you can't do the job without the other guy. And you, if you don't communicate, you're dead in the water. I mean, you can't fix your job without working with the other guy on the other end of the snake, either way, monitors, front of house, anything. Uh, Cause I, what, front of house does completely affects what happens on stage and this vice versa. If you're using wedges, it's, it's, it's a room sound. Mm-hmm. And if you're using ears, then the front of house affects the monitors and whatever he does in the ears affects front of house. Because if uh, let's say if a guitar player is playing, if his guitar doesn't sound right in his ears, he's going to change the sound. And so you have to figure all that out. And, Fortunately, I've had some really, really good luck with a, some great, great monitor engineers. And I have to admit that if I've had any, su- what success I've had has been dependent on the people I've worked with. I, I would agree a hundred percent. I mean, not, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bull, sorry. no, it, not that there's been any great success, but I've been lucky enough to work with John McBride, with Chris Taylor, with Dave Mattel. I mean, it's uh, it is amazing. And, and, you know, whether it is wedges or gears or whatever you, you are feeding off of each other the energy that you guys are doing or that we're doing together. It's uh, it's massive and the band can feel it. You know, if, if something's feeding back at 200 um, and the band likes a little beefier, then you might ask front of house, Hey, can you pull some 200 or 250 or whatever? Right. And, the, but then at that time you have to give it to front of house, you have to warm up the room in that. If they're going to create the hole, then you have to fix it. 
And that's that conversation. That's that, you know, or if, if, you know, vice versa, if I'm killing, if I'm sighting a room somewhere, then I'll, I'll pull it. And then I'll ask CT, Hey man, can you give me a little more of that? You know, it's sitting in that frequency range and, and it'll just, you know, it'll, it'll click together when, and when it does, it's the perfect golf swing. And I don't even golf. <laughs> so, so Boulder, when you, when you first start with either a new artist or a new front of house engineer, do you have an upfront conversation uh, of, Hey, here's how I'm approaching this. Or do you guys both do your thing kind of see where that comes in the middle? What, how do you, how do you typically approach that? Um, I, I normally approach it as uh, unless I need to change something. I mean, I would approach it as this. I would say, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Right. And we'll work together. And then I'll kind of wait and see where it goes because, uh, you know, I don't want to tell the front of house guy or the guitar player to turn down or I don't want to inhibit any of that. Right. right? So I, you know, a lot of times I was telling the guys too, when front of house tunes, the PA, I'll go out and listen. I want to go out and hear what the room's doing, what the guys are doing out front so that I know that I don't excite that part of it, especially when you're doing, you know, a, a boatload of wedges. Right. So I think it's important to, to put yourself in their shoes uh, so that you can understand what you're doing on stage and kind of, you know, flip it back on, you know, on stage. But yeah, I mean, I just, I do have the conversation and go, look, I, I have no ego in this. Uh, we're here to make this a complete success. So if there's anything I'm doing, let me know. And uh, we'll just work together to make it great. Talk about some of the problems you can have if, uh, if you're not uh, like loading, loading Mike Pre's down making gain adjustments because of uh console issues and things well i'll tell you one of my experiences early on on the janet jackson tour front of house was feeding back at 5k from the background vocal mics and they were 20 feet upstage and the pa was 20 feet in air and i was driving me batty and i called some of the engineers at claire and they said oh those microphones change their polar pattern when they're loaded down with the mic pre. And I've changed the microphones to a transformer couple mic, fixed all of my problems. Uh, so microphones are not uh, perfect, you know, and they change according to what they're plugged into. And that's what you kind of have to learn. Uh, you listen to it. If it doesn't work, it might work great for someone or some certain situation and never work again for anybody else. I mean, uh, you can't sit there and go, well, I use specifically this microphone for all this stuff. You kind of have to play it by ear. And of course the musicians have a lot to say about that. Sometimes the best learning experience for me is like when Bull and I were out on Amy Grant's Christmas tour, I would go to the woodwind section and said, oh, you know, where I'll put this microphone on your, on your oboe. And they would, and it, they actually appreciated the fact that you bothered to ask. Right. And, uh, and I learned a ton from those guys because Mike and an orchestra is not like Mike and Mike and a rock and roll band. And, uh, we were touring with a, uh, with a huge orchestra and, and the mic positions became critical. And when you did it right, the job came easy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm at, you know, along with that CT, you know, CT had it rough. So Dan Huff uh, is a producer in town, and his dad, Ron, was the conductor. So um, he would come out every day, and he would challenge Chris, you know, to make it the best that it absolutely could. And along with that, trying to mix monitors for uh, orchestral pianists and, you know, different musicians was was very difficult. 
you know, um, and Mike's selection became uh, 100% up, you know, uh, to make it sound as natural as it could. And, and that was a point where, you know, you, you did, you had to check your ego and go, okay, how am I going to mic? Chris, what did we wind up with the piano, the, the magic mono microphone that finally got Alberto to? It was a C, Sony C48, this huge yeah. monster thing. We had to duct tape into the piano every day. And he says, okay, now this is what a piano is supposed to sound like. <laughs> I mean, I, I I was using Smitty's MIDI keyboard and I could weld with it, you know what I mean? But that's, you know, that's what they wanted. And those were the dynamics that they did. And, and you know, you just have to adapt with them and then, you know, work together up front with Chris. Is this going to work with you? And, you know, this is working for so-and-so and, and um, you know, what are we going to do? And was Ron real heavily involved in that microphone selection stuff as well? Or was that just you guys working it out between the two of you? Yeah, I was just kind of working out with, with mostly with the musicians, and because these guys, they were all in ears. We had a whole orchestra on in ears, and they heard everything. Yeah. So it was very important the positions and what it sounded like. It had to sound real to those guys, and uh, and consequently, what they wanted worked. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about uh? How about have you ever had a difference opinion on on mic placement? Maybe agreed on the mic, but just you know mic placement. You oh, know, yeah. Couple, yeah. So and what? How did how do you navigate that? Do you end up putting two mics on? Do you compromise? How does that go down? Uh, usually, mic placement uh ends up being only only issues I've ever had with mic placement is usually kick drum. You know, and uh, but in that particular case with the orchestra the guys that were playing and they were listening to that stuff in their ears, they knew exactly where they wanted the mic. And if you did what they said, you, uh, it usually worked. And we did area micing too. So we did, Chris set it up where, uh, we did, were they sound lab CT? Yeah. That was in those days. Yeah. Yeah. So it would, we would have a, a inside microphone and then we would do the, the area micing. And that was for me, that was it. I mean, that was, that was a secret sauce because they didn't, they, they would want to hear a little bit just for pitch, but they wanted to hear what the section was doing as a whole. Yeah. Well, and that's more of a natural way to hear it. I mean, because, you know, the theoretically best thing is to not mic the orchestra at all, but it's just, that's not going to work in an arena. Right. Um, and I should point out, you guys had a pretty amazing opportunity or the experience with that because you toured with an orchestra and I've done tons of orchestra stuff, but I've never toured with an orchestra. It's always been a different local orchestra and we've traveled with a conductor or whatever and had rehearsals, but man, going on the road, you didn't have a chance to, I mean, you, you had to work things out. If, 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 if it wasn't going to get fixed, then you were going to have to deal with this the entire tour. So it was, uh, you, you had to make sure it was right. I'm sure that posed a whole lot of challenges and, uh, and, uh, um, complications to make it all, make it all right. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll butt in here, Chris, uh, uh, being the monitor guy. So here's the biggest thing, um, food. These people eat, man, and it is it, it is impressive. If there's any, um, I don't know if there's anybody watching, but there is. You guys are amazing musicians, and I've never seen anybody eat like it. So about halfway through the tour, we were doing like, what, Chris, six in a row, five in a row? I mean, yeah, it was, like I don't even remember how many trucks it was. It was, it was big. You know, at the time, there was two monitor positions. There were three front of house consoles. Digital wasn't out at the time. So, you know, it was it was awesome. But by the, you know, fourth or fifth day, you're just numb. You know, you're just walking around on tree legs and, you know, tree stumps and whatever else. And so <laughs> you, you get done with sound check, and they would go, man, catering. I mean, they were gone, you know. And uh, so then we decided, you know what? 
there's not a whole lot left for the roadies. So what we decided to do was the people that weren't mixing during the sound check would uh, go get food for everybody. <laughs> so when the artist was on the stage, we'd be eating. They'd be like, hey, Bull, can I get a little more of this? And you're like, yeah, well, yeah hold on a minute. Oh, we're good. That's really good. So yeah, that was a that was a big thing, man. We had to navigate. If you wanted food, you had to figure out where to get it. Yeah, uh, and, and there was some funny things on that tour. That one of the interesting things is that in the contracts there was uh, a, a temperature that they had couldn't play on stage below, and we were playing hockey rinks with ice down. So they had a big thermometer they put on stage, so to keep it above that temperature actually put a screw in it so the temperature gauge wouldn't go down <laughs> far enough. <laughs> the production manager did that. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> have, you, have you guys ever had to uh, share head amps at all? And Maybe not together, but on different tours? And, and what's that relationship been like between front house and monitors and trying to – I know you can always have compensation and stuff like that, but there's always typically a starting point. Well, I did it a lot. Uh I used I did a bunch of David Foster shows and uh, my and Randy Weitzel was the monitor engineer. We toured together for a long time, and our discussion was who had to do it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I always delegated to the monitor guy because he's the guy that if you change a head amp gain, he's got that for thirty some odd mixes. With me, it's just two, and so it's all a matter of having the discussion to say, okay, you know how to do this, don't you? The problem is when you get with people that have, don't know how to deal with game structure, that's when people have problems. And, and, and when you don't have this communication, like what we're talking about, if you don't communicate, you know, or you don't get along or whatever. No, there's, you can't share, but the times I've shared, I've never had a problem. Well, and even more so now, um, like with Revage, you've got uh, a lot of the color is coming from the preamp. And if you're using silk and transformer emulation, then if you're sharing head amps, you're sharing that color as well. And I think more often than not, the guys who are wearing in-ears are going to notice that it's going to be more pronounced to them than it is to somebody in the audience. So it makes sense that the monitor guy um, is the guy driving, driving that. And I also think, too, for the monitor guy, even if we're not doing the head amps, Chris, if you know, if, we're, if it's not us, I think it's it's more important to uh, let the front of house guy get it where he needs it to be before you send it to the to the musicians, right? So present it to them in the best case scenario. When things change, that's when they get nervous. Uh, of course, Chris, am I right on that? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's got to be a good relationship. If it's not a good relationship, it's not going to work. So a bull, I mean, uh, being a, being a monitor guy and being so close to the artists and stuff, how often have you found yourself, you know, you're going to notice things from the artists or musicians sooner in terms of their, their, where their headspace is at for the day and stuff like that. How much of that do you feel like you ever have to communicate the front of house guy? Like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this today. This is happening. What's, what, what's, you know, what's, what's that like? So, all right, Chris, I'm going to, I'm going to let, let it out there. Uh, so when we did the Amy Grant thing, it was, uh, uh, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, and C.C. Winans. And C.C. Winans uh, would sing Oh Holy Night. And I promise you there was not a dry eye in a 20,000-seat arena or a 100-piece orchestra. I mean, it was the most amazing thing. You, it was it was unbelievable. She could clip a capsule holding it this far away. 
And so she would always come out with this little towel uh, that would somewhere, I, I called it the, the, the Holy Spirit towel. And uh, when she was going, her hands would start doing this and she'd put it behind her back. And I would like, I'd call out front of the house. I'm like, boys, hold on to your gain knobs. The Holy Spirit is fixing to come out. I mean, spirits of fire. I mean, we are fixing to get some oh holy night. <laughs> we get done with that. All you hear from front of the house was, whew. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that, and, you know, likewise with, with John, uh, with Martina, you know, he's like, hey, her voice is a little bit here you know, being married to her or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do. And I think it's a, a whether it's front of house uh, and I'm going to tell on Chris again on this one uh, or monitors, you know, it's, you're the whoopee, right? You're the, you're the blanket. You show the calmness uh, to get them out of that headspace. Um, one of the other things we did on, on the Amy tour was, is there were so many different microphones coming in and out. Uh, I would, and I was doing RF at the time. I would announce when the microphones were on. And so I would say, you know, because in the ears, they would get froke out. You know, past tense of freak is broken, whatever. And so they'd all get froke out. And I'm like, okay, uh, Smitty's mic's hot, right? And then it was um, CeCe's mic is hot. And we all these squawk boxes. And so every night before Breath of Heaven, Amy would come out. I'm like, Amy's vocal's hot. Or I'd say Amy's hot or whatever else. And so she had bent down one night to get some flowers uh, from a little girl. And she unplugged her ear monitor belt pack. And um, so but the next day, we got called into the dressing room. And me and CT, and I thought, well, I'm going home. I was whatever, you know, it, you're getting called the principal's office, right? You know, and she goes, well, I just, hey, guys, how's it going? Is it good? She goes, I got a couple things. First of all, Bull, it's very flattering that you think I'm attractive. But a lot of people can hear, the, uh, hear that through the speaker. And I said, uh, I just kind of hung my head. I said, I'm sorry, Amy, I'll use uh, different verbiage. It means your vocal is on. Uh, so the person shoots you at the time could tell you that your vocals on in your ears and you could go out on stage. And she goes, the second thing is um, I unplugged my ear monitors last night and I loved it. And I, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I'm, I'm really talented. That's great. You know? And she goes, I love singing to the room. She goes, it sounds the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Uh, would you two be okay if I just sang off a of front of house? Cause I love what I hear. And I said, Amy, I just lost about 128 cues. I'm completely okay with it. Chris, how about you? <laughs> it's on you, buddy boy. And she did. She sang the rest of that um, the rest of that tour with no – she would wear an earplug if she had a hard time hearing. Wow. So than that, she would just sing to the room, and it was, uh, it was amazing. She always makes – I mean, I, were, I toured with Amy for a long time as well, and um, she would have the monitor engineer shut off her monitors every once in a while. She would – talk to me after the show and she'd go man it's a great sound of show tonight i go does you have some friends there and she goes no i had them turn the monitors off and i listened to it it was really <laughs> and that makes having an artist tell me they listen to your mix during the show is about the most unnerving thing i can ever imagine <laughs> yeah pass the baton and you only had like a hundred and some inputs <laughs> out front so i was like heck yeah i can concentrate and make fun i can sing off key to the guys on the stage even better now i can i can get more of a shtick going so that was always fun too. They would sing the different Christmas songs and I would do animal noises in their ears. Cause you know, after 20, 30 shows, it, you know, the rhythm section was kind of bored. So I kind of kept it along and I would sing just slightly off key in their ear monitors. Once Amy gave the reins, I was like, Oh, it is on. You know? <laughs> That's great. Well, I've heard so many talk, so many people talk about what a great monitor engineer you are, Bolt. And sometimes that, well, 
I think sometimes it's based on how much you make them laugh. Yeah. They'll always, man, he's a great modern engineer. He's always singing stuff into our ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I makes mean, him good. I mean, I know he's good, but yeah, I mean, whatever it takes, and and you know, I, we're not saving babies. I mean, it's how blessed are we to be able to get to do what we do? I mean, the lights go down, and you get to help somebody. Hopefully, have a. Uh, three hours or two hours of, of forgetting about all the stuff that's going on. And you, you're lucky enough to be a part of that. Why not have fun with it? You know, I, I always, I just got the biggest kick out of it. And, you know, the musicians always made sure they, they felt a part of it. And, you know, just that symbiotic thing. And, and like with Chris, you know, especially on Jewel, I mean, it was, he was as much of a band member as anybody. I mean, if, if CT wasn't staying at the hotel that the band was at, they didn't stay there period. The crew. I mean, it was, that's the truth. We were in uh, Italy, and Jewel had put them up at some fancy hotel, and they're like, where's Chris and the crew at? And they're like, well, they're down the hill. And they're like, yeah, you can go ahead and move us. I mean, it, it, so, you know, when, when you can build that relationship, it's, uh, like I said, it's the perfect golf swing. It really is. And so, Jewel, Chris, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Jewel was your last tour, right, before you went to work for Yamaha? Yeah, yeah, I left that tour. I mean, Jewel was an interesting thing. I mean, she was an interesting lady, and – uh, the band was spectacular and, and they were willing to do anything that we ask with uh, that. The whole stage was totally silent and, and bull did ear monitors for everybody. No guitar amps, you know, it was all up there, but it wasn't working. And um, one of the biggest compliments, because the hardest problem with doing in ears or silent amps, to my opinion, being a, an ex guitar player is guitar sounds. And I know that directs don't ever sound as good as a mic speaker. And the fact that these guys understood that, and I explained to them that, you know, if they take a solo with a microphone, as I turn that solo up, I pick up all the ambience around with the microphone, not just guitar solo. And we did what, six months of this tour. And the band goes, we want to try wedges. And, both Bull and I go, hey, go we'll go for it. And after the show, they came back and said, don't ever let us do that again. Yeah. <laughs> said, yeah. we can't hear anything. Mm -hmm. Our ears are ringing. Don't ever let us do that again. And we said, okay. You know, but they were, we were, it was the whole band and crew. It was a team. You know, we wanted it to be silent stage. And after a while, they got tired of it. But we said, go ahead, try it, you know. If it works, it works. But uh, and and we had some really great shows. And and actually, she's the first artist I've ever worked for that actually made the crew get up on stage and play with her. We played Red Rocks and she said, well, we're going to play a song together. And she actually called me in from front of house to to play on stage in Red Rocks. And, and the band left and it was all the crew guys. And she stayed up there and sang a song. It was like that's I'd awesome. Never Never had that happen before. She's like, "Don't suck," and we said, "Okay." <laughs> and uh, the keyboard player at the time played was original member of Mister Mister. He went down and did uh, monitors. You know, the drum tech got up and played drums, and the and the drummer Trey was teching for him. I mean, they all and and they were proud to do it. You know what I mean? It was everybody wanted to do it. It was just uh, that was it, and it was you know there were rough nights. You know, there were nights when you know, because everything is direct and, and there was no place to hide in monitors, you know, um, but we all knew it was worth it, you know, especially after what CT was saying, 
you know, after that one show of, <laughs> well, I was like wedges. Um, I'm going to melt your face with wedges. So we don't do this again. And, <laughs> I mean, it, but you know, it, whatever you want to do, man, you want me to make it rain? I'll take a rain stick. I'll, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely, that was our one chance to go. All right, let's beat this out of them real quick. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. But as far as the relationship, uh, the relationships with monitors in front of house is, is the most important relationship sound guys have. I mean, they've got to work together. They've got to do this. And also with the musicians. And, uh, one thing uh, I've had guys come up to me and they ask me what you do and this, that, and the other setting up. And I said, you know, if you get the opportunity, go to rehearsals, don't set up anything, don't mic anything and sit in the middle of the band and listen to what they want it to sound like before you even put a microphone on anything. Do a couple of days of just sitting through rehearsals and then start putting things in place to create what they're doing on stage out in front of house. And, uh, and that has helped me the most. And then I've had people come up like, well, actually Jill asked me to come out after I'd worked to work for Yamaha and talk to her front of house guy. And he had all of these things on her channel, multi-band compressor and all these things like that. And, uh, and, and he was having trouble with her vocal cause she has a huge dynamic range. And uh, he asked me what I did and I go high pass filter. Uh, I said, I'm sorry, but you've got to learn the songs. When she sings loud, you turn it down. When she sings quiet, you turn it up. There's, you can't, there's not anything that's going to do 15 dB of vocal reduction for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. So I, that's the biggest thing I can tell anybody about mixing in front of house. Learn the music. Yeah. When I went to work for Michael Jackson, I spent two weeks in hotel rooms with headphones on. Listen to every glass break that existed. And, uh, and, and some bands are easy because you listen to their music. I didn't listen to his music, but I learned every little thing. And, and moving from arenas to stadiums was another big experience. I missed every cue for the first week. Real, and before I realized I was 175 feet away, they already played it before I, before I heard it. Yeah. So I had to start learning how to anticipate cues, you know, by 200 milliseconds or so. And uh, that was a hard change. I mean, every move that you make is a change and you, and most of the changes that you need to adapt to monitors front of house are not technical changes. They're physical changes or physics changes that you need to make learning the music, learning the situation you're in. Those are more important than all of the plugins and all of the digital things that you can do uh, as an engineer. I mean, it's a it's a art artistic thing, not a technical job. And you know, speaking about working together, I mean, there were nights whether it was Amy or you know Jewel or or whoever you're working with, where you could see they were singing off the microphone, and you know the guys out front are struggling. So you know, turn it down. If you, if you can get by with it, and we're not talking about, you know, three, five dB. It can just be a one dB. And, you know, you have to kind of Barney Fife them. You know, you, you got to get what they want at the beginning, and then you can kind of Barney Fife them at the end. And you can honestly just see them that are not even trying to, you know, and, and working together with things like that, especially when they're uncomfortable or, they're you know, their voice, they say it's not working well that night or anything like that. And you say, man, I got you. You know, I uh, there's times when you could pull the vocal back and then turn their outputs up, right? So that their their levels stay the same. 
but they're wanting more vocal and they're, and they're bringing it closer. And all those little, all those little things are musical and those are, those are helping your brother at front of house. And those, those that's invaluable. Yeah. And it's so noticeable at front of house when somebody's doing that or not. And I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it becomes clear real, real quick. If, and it's not that they're, intentionally trying to work against you but some people just don't understand what a team effort it is i think yeah and some days are better than others look some days you're gonna get by with it some days you're gonna get busted you know but at least take a swing at it yeah i think you know so one of the things we talk about on the second the noise podcast often is that relationship uh we talk about often like the front of house engineer in the modern engineer to the artist in that you know, we're here to, you know, they already have a vision and an art of what they want to put out there, right? We're just here as vessels to then translate as a medium out to the audience, right? And so if you don't understand where it is they're trying to go, where is they're coming from, uh, you're going to get in the way. This is not about us. It's not our mix. It's not our show. We're trying to translate the, with the experience that they want. Sometimes it might give us liberty, you know, to, to put our flavor, our touch on it. But at the end of the day, uh, if I'm inhibiting what it is that they're trying to convey, you're doing something wrong. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, I love the fact that we, you know, we've, we've titled this relationship, right? Cause it's both, it's relationship with monogeneer, with the artist. That's it's such a central word to, um, the work that we do. Um, and it's, you know, nobody's better than anybody. And we're all here yeah. to invoke emotion out of an experience out of people, right? Yeah. We're, we're a part of delivering that medium, uh, and, and getting in the way of that is just wrong. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting too, to have trust with everybody. It, there was one time I was really struggling for like, it's it probably a week and a half with Martina and we had had just a string of awesome shows. And she's like, something has changed. She goes, I know the way you mix something's wrong. Something's changed. And I said, Martina, I haven't done anything. I promise it's the same, same, same. Well, I had gotten a new microphone with a new capsule on it and the capsule was actually shorter. So the rejection with, you can say all the technical terms. It was different and she could hear it. And I went back to the old, uh, I said, well, this is the only thing I've changed. This is new. It's supposed to be better. And I went back to the old uh, capsule and immediately she sang through it. And she goes, thank you. You know, but she, you know, she didn't fire me. She could have, I mean, she was really getting frustrated and, and different things like that, but she dug in because she had trust and she knew that I wasn't going to give up and she wasn't going to give up. And I think you have to have that, you know, with your musicians as well as, you know, your front of house mixers. We're going to look, we're going to have bad nights. I mean, we were in work during Natal had uh, uh, Aerosmith out front and he absolutely annihilated me. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, the low end that came on stage and, they did an after show party that night and the band was frustrated. Um, and they were saying, man, the monitors were really rough tonight. And he said, no, it wasn't. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? He goes, I had Aerosmith out there. He goes, I was, I, I was killing you guys. He goes, there's no way that a 12 inch speaker can make that amount of low end. I don't care what you say. It's physically impossible. It was all me. <laughs> I mean, he, he totally jumped on the sword. I mean, it was the truth, Dave. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know that's the kind of that's the that's the kind of relationship you know the first time i turned the vocal mic down to jagger he <laughs> all the lights go off he thought i was landing something what'd you do i go well i turned it down a little bit he's like keep doing that and i said dave you got to give me a minute to fake the guy out or at least get him comfortable you know to where he's at but you know those were the things you, you kind of learned together chris really helped me on jules vocal she was she was tough in monitors man she would call you out over the microphone in front of the audience and did let you have it. And um, there were times where I just couldn't find that, whatever it was. And I'm like, Chris, can you give me some Judy Garland in front of house? 
uh, which is we all, him and I call the top end. And he would put just a little sweetener on it. She's like, there it is. And I, I didn't do anything, you know? Um, yeah, you got to have it. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, some of the experience of tours I've done um, in Model World, we always had a backup left-right mix. Uh, is that something you guys have ever had to do and or have you ever had to actually go to it? I have, yeah. I actually did. We had a, I think it was a stage rack went down. And um, no, you know what? I think it was McBride's Paragon. And so we did a, a left-right with a, a vocal. Um, and so that way they could just holler at me. It's only happened once or twice, but yeah, we always we always had that. And was, was, uh, was that something that the front house guy ever checked on to see what it would look like if I ever had to go to it? Or was it something oh, yeah. that's kind of create? Yeah, I mean. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, we, we'd go through it and the band would play and, and John or, you know, whoever would just check it and go, hey, guitar's a little out of here, you know, whatever. But at least when you do the switch and, you know, checking your game structure so that we did switch between the two, you know, it wasn't, you know, um, right to stun, go to plaid. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember doing that on tour so much, but I've had consoles go down to the show. I mean, uh, and are in before shows, fortunately, uh, I've known enough to get them back working. Uh, I, I was on a Jan on Janet Jackson. I walked out to put the house music on and every light on the console came on and the whole thing went dead. <laughs> and, uh, and that was the Claire board. And fortunately the way they designed that is that, they have multiple power supplies and all of them are identical with different taps for the voltage. And I was able to steal the power supply off the lights on the console and put it on the, on the uh, audio and retap it. I didn't have any lights or meters, but I had noise. <laughs> so yeah, things like that happen all the time. Uh, and it, and it has to do with the products. A lot of times the products you're using, you know, some consoles fail more than others. And obviously nowadays in the digital world, there's many ways that you can crash a console, you know? And so it's, I, I don't think I would go out on tour now without that. But fortunately I've never had to go to it. Well, Murphy's law makes it to where if you're ready for it, you're not going to have a problem, but if you're mm -hmm. not ready for it, it's when you're going to have issues. And that's, I mean, I think you're unwise to not prepare in every way possible for a disaster but at the same time you can't stress about it around the clock and and but you need to be ready for it you know you need to be you need to know have a plan if the console has to be rebooted during a show and uh or if uh you know if whatever goes out you need to know how you're going to work around it yeah well multi, most of my touring big tours were in the analog days and i had multiple consoles so it was just a matter of patching the things you wanted to hear into the console that was working Chris, I, I I would love to get your uh, feedback on because I know you are such a lover of the um, of the Claire board, and it did such a nice thing to uh, analog sources to drums, and was such a I mean to to me was the the Rupert Neve console of um, of live sound, and um, and then you were real instrumental in bringing Rupert Neve in to be part of the Rivage, the most recent, uh, you know, the flagship Yamaha console now. And um, I guess just tell me your sonic impression of how, you know, the, the comparison between Rivage and, and the, the Claire board. Well, I've always been a fan of Transformer coupled consoles since that's what I started on. You know, Transformers have a, 
a unique effect on percussion stuff in particular, drums, things like that. And I like that distortion that it added. It was, you know, like, like the reasons that we sometimes, I know that a lot of engineers use really bad reverbs on drums because they want that nasty verb sound. Uh, I've always, I, I've always enjoyed having that transformer coupled input. And during the process of working on Revage, uh, they, we were discussing plugins. And during the process, we were going, who do we want to do plugins? And Rupert Neves' name kept coming to the top of the list every time, but everybody says, well, he doesn't do this. And I, and he's never done it before. And I was kind of curious. I said, well, why don't we just ask him? And they go, okay, ask him. Maybe he'll show up at a trade show. I said, I doubt it. He lives in Texas. And they didn't even know that the Japanese people didn't know much about Rupert Neves. They didn't know he lived in Texas. And I have a really good friend that owns a mobile truck that's real good friends with Rupert Neve. And I called him up and I said, you, you set up a meeting. So we went down and had a meeting with him. And so during the process, he'd agreed to work with Yamaha. And uh, this Toshi, Toshi Fumi Kunamoto, we call him Dr. K. He's brilliant. He's a jazz pianist. He knows sound. And he's a brilliant uh, uh, technician. And he's created this thing called virtual circuit modeling. So he'll take the schematic diagram and create a digital version of that. And then he will go back and listen to it and make it sound like the original product. And during this process, he was emulating a Rupert Neve transformer. And uh, so he would send stuff to me and I would listen to it. And I wrote back to him, I said, you know, this EQ is really good, but this other stuff over here is great. I love this stuff. You know, the, the transformer emulation and the, 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 uh, transformer hysteresis and the second and third harmonic distortion, all this stuff that he created for Rupert Neve to create the sound that he wanted. I said, can we have this? And uh, they were reluctant, but I actually created some tracks that I mixed without it, then added it and sent it to them and let them listen to it. And they decided they would do this on the front side. So to me, I love that little transformer button mm -hmm. on the console. It, brings me back to the clairboard days of in my mind of what a kick drum and a snare drum supposed to sound like uh, and not having to, to add compression and all of the stuff that we, because the hardest thing for me moving from analog to digital was that I couldn't get the sounds I was used to without a lot of work. I never compressed a kick drum or snare drum in my life in the analog world. But once you get into the digital world, you have to, and you have to, give that, create those sounds. And I had a hard time for a long time making that transform gates, digital gates, just lower the volume and uh, analog gates had noise in them. Yeah. But I, I realized that I used to use the noise for part of my Tom sound when I was gating Toms. And so I had to relearn how to mix it for a while. And uh, going back to the Revage, they give you both ways. The Revage allows you to be, to ha add this transformer emulation and distortion that some of us are used to having or turn it off and have us just straight digital clean console, which I have to admit when I was doing orchestras, I love that. Well, I love the having a digital console mixing an orchestra because you put a thousand dollar microphone into one of those channels. It sounded really, really good. And uh, so 
that's kind of the story that that all came about is that just to try to recreate the analog days into a console. That's great. I mean, I, I, I just, I think when we're looking back at and talking about these old tours and, and the analog gear that was used to make so many of them sound so great that it's a, great to kind of see how it's come back around again and there's uh finally an answer in the digital world that i think is achieving that uh result that we loved about the analog you know mm-hmm. um well i know you guys are all sitting around staring at my shirt wondering what in the world i'm wearing this for uh if if you are wondering this is uh shirt from a, a group called the clinic a roadie advocacy group I know none of you are asking this, but I want you to know about it. Uh, Paul and Courtney Clemson, who are a great couple who are dedicating their lives right now to creating a a group that financially and psychologically helps roadies uh, with their needs. And they've really been able to help a lot of people out right now during this uh, coronavirus time. But if, if you get a chance, check it out, uh, www theroadyclinic.com and um, they're a great organization, great people. And, um, and man, I'm excited to be wearing the shirt. Uh, do we have any, Chris, do we have any uh, questions or anything we need to be looking at? Uh, no, just, you know, just comments of, um, you know, just that, uh, you know, people just agreeing we're going, uh, nice discussion and stuff like that. So no, I mean, if you have any questions, feel, f- feel free to, you know, drop them in real quick before we, uh, before we kind of wrap up here. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I you know, so I, I got I got to bring a little bit of the signal to noise flavor into this. So uh, I'll start with Bull. Where is your favorite place to eat on the road? Well, I mean, you can look at me. I, I have a lot of them. I mean, it costs a lot of money to have this figure. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I, man, the Wolf Lodge, Dantana's, Maestros, the Carnies, they're. Um, well, John's Pizza on 44th in New York City. I, I, it's an old church. I love that, the mozzarella pizza there. And By the way, if you do go there and you get the mozzarella wedges and they tell you that you can't get a full gravy boat of marinara, they're lying. Because you can. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but quite a few places. Depends on where you're at. <laughs> uh, Chris, what, how, how about you? Well, you know, I thought I'd eaten in a lot of really great places, but I became a fan of uh, with my buddy Randy Weitzel, I have to mention once in a while, of sushi. And I thought I'd had good sushi till I went to work for Yamaha. And to go to Japan and have the Japanese engineers take me around to some of their places to eat, there's been some pretty spectacular meals that I've had with my trips to Japan working for Yamaha. And plus a couple, a few when I was touring over there too. But uh, I have to say, uh, I don't, can't think of any names of any places because I just kind of end up follow, following them around and I don't know what their names are anyway, but <laughs> there actually is. There was uh, during the whole process of uh, uh, creating the Rivage console, there was four of us and we went to this place called Nopo, which is uh, in Japanese for tall man. And, and it's meat on a stick. I mean, I don't even know what all the meats say were, but they just bring this meat on the stick. <laughs> and we would go there every time. We it, it would it would be the first email that you would get uh, before you were having a meeting there. They would say, okay, how many people? Because it was a really small place, so you had to limit the number of people. So whoever signed up first got to go. 
but that that was that's a really good place. I actually, when my wife went back with me one time, that's the first place we went. She loved it too. <laughs> and I have eaten there three times. I got to say, and it's fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well, you know, so you know, uh, please check out the Signal to Noise podcast. We we like to joke and say we're a taco podcast that happens to talk about audio, but you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's you know, you can't, you know, we have, like to have a lot of fun. We like to say, you know, Signal to Noise podcast is more like, um, you know, sitting at Denny's after the gig or the back of the tour bus after the yeah. gig and just and just having a conversation, kind of relax. Um, and uh, sometimes we get nerdy, sometimes we get talk about food. It it, it it's a mix all around. So uh, also please check out Front of the House Fridays. It comes out every Friday, hence the name. It kind of makes sense. I know this is Tuesday, but you know, hey, we have Friday to look forward to, right? I mean, that's it's it's what it's, it's what it's about. <laughs> Thanks for having us on, Chris. Yeah, no problem. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks.